for what it's worth. I'm just giving this a go. I'm not saying I'm going to keep it, but I'm going to try as best I can. Because it did um, stop me before, so... Okay, here we go. Aperture. I have therefore good reason for asking if it is possible to penetrate through such a medium. So, Axel, it is the heat that troubles you? Of course it is. Were we to reach a depth of 30 miles, we should have arrived at the limit of the terrestrial crust, for there the temperature will be more than 2,372 degrees. Are you afraid of being put into a state of fusion? I will leave you to decide that question, I answered rather sullenly. This is my decision, replied Professor Liedenbrock, putting on one of his grandest airs. Neither you nor anybody else knows with any certainty what is going on in the interior of this globe, since not the twelve-thousandth part of its radius is known. Science is eminently perfectible, and every new theory is soon routed by a newer. Was it not always believed until Fourier that the temperature of the interplanetary spaces decreased perpetually? And is it not known at the present time that the greatest cold of the ethereal regions is never lower than 40 degrees below zero? Why should it not be the same with the internal heat? Why should it not, at a certain depth, attain an impassable limit instead of rising to such a point as to fuse the most infusible metals? As my uncle was now taking his stand upon hypotheses, of course, there was nothing to be said. Well, I will tell you that true savants, among them Poisson, have demonstrated that if a heat of 360,000 degrees existed in the interior of the globe, the fiery gases arising from the fused matter would acquire an elastic force which the crust of the earth would be unable to resist, and that it would explode like the plates of a bursting boiler. That is Poisson's opinion, my uncle, nothing more. Granted, but it is likewise the creed adopted by other distinguished geologists, that the interior of the globe is neither gas nor water, nor any of the heaviest minerals known for in none of these cases would the earth weigh what it does. Hmm. Oh, with figures you may prove anything. But is it the same with facts? Is it not known that the number of volcanoes has diminished since the first days of creation? And if there is central heat, may we not thence conclude that it is in process of diminution? My good uncle, if you will enter into the region of speculation, I can discuss the matter no longer. But I have to tell you that the highest names have come to the support of my views. Do you remember a visit paid to me by the celebrated chemist Humphrey Davy in 1825? Not at all, for I was not born until 19 years afterwards. Well, Humphrey Davy did call upon me on his way through Hamburg. We were long engaged in discussing, amongst other problems, the hypothesis of the liquid structure of the terrestrial nucleus. We were agreed that it could not be in a liquid state, for a reason which science has never been able to confute. And what is that reason, I said, rather astonished. Because this liquid mass would be subject, like the ocean, to the lunar attraction, and therefore twice every day there would be internal tides, which, upheaving the terrestrial crust, would cause periodical earthquakes. And it is evident that the surface of the globe has been subject to the action of fire, I replied. And it is quite reasonable to suppose that the external crust cooled down first, whilst the heat took refuge down to the center. Quite a mistake, my uncle answered. The earth has been heated by combustion on its surface, that is all. Its surface was composed of a great number of metals, such as potassium and sodium, 
which have the peculiar property of igniting at the mere contact with air and water. These metals kindled when the atmospheric vapors fell in rain upon the soil, and by and by, when the waters penetrated into the fissures of the crust of the earth, they broke out into fresh combustion with explosions and eruptions. Such was the cause of the numerous volcanoes at the origin of the earth. Upon my word, this is a very clever hypothesis, I exclaimed, in spite rather of myself. And which Humphrey Davy demonstrated to me by a simple experiment. He formed a small ball of the metals which I have named, and which was a very fair representation of our globe. Whenever he caused a fine dew of rain to fall upon its surface, it heaved up into little monticules, it became oxidized and formed miniature mountains. A crater broke open at one of its summits. The eruption took place and communicated to the whole of the ball such a heat that it could not be held in the hand. In truth, I was beginning to be shaken by the professor's arguments, besides which he gave additional weight to them by his usual ardor and fervent enthusiasm. You see, Axel, he added, the condition of the terrestrial nucleus has given rise to various hypotheses among geologists. There is no proof at all for this internal heat. My opinion is that there is no such thing it cannot be. Besides, we shall see for ourselves, and, like our nesecnism, we shall know exactly what to hold as truth concerning this grand question. Very well, we shall see, I replied, feeling myself carried off by his contagious enthusiasm. Yes, we shall see, that is, if it is possible to see anything there. And why not? May we not depend upon electric phenomena to give us light? May we not even expect light from the atmosphere, the pressure of which may render it luminous as we approach the center? Yes, yes, said I, that is possible too. It is certain, exclaimed my uncle in a tone of triumph. But silence, do you hear me? Silence upon the whole subject, and let no one get before us in this design of discovering the center of the earth. End of chapter 6 Recorded October 12, 2005, in Longmont, Colorado. You know what this is? A commercial? Right, and you know what that means. Time for a snack? Wrong. I want you to do some heart-healthy exercise. Yes, you! Try some seated leg extensions right now. Just lift each leg up and extend it straight, one at a time, six to eight times. I can do that. Yes, you can! Remember, every commercial is a chance to sneak in heart-healthy activity. Visit findexerciseanywhere.com and speak with your doctor to learn more about the risks of heart failure. Convinced of the truth of what I had heard, 
Had I not bent under the iron rule of the Professor Liedenbrock? Was I to believe him in earnest in his intention to penetrate to the center of this massive globe? Had I been listening to the mad speculations of a lunatic, or to the scientific conclusions of a lofty genius? Where did truth stop? Where did error begin? I was all adrift amongst a thousand contradictory hypotheses, but I could not lay hold of one. Yet I remembered that I had been convinced, although now my enthusiasm was beginning to cool down. But I felt a desire to start at once, and not to lose time and courage by calm reflection. I had at that moment quite courage enough to strap my knapsack to my shoulders and start. But I must confess that in another hour this unnatural excitement abated. My nerves became unstrung, and from the depths of the abysses of this earth I ascended to its surface again. It is quite absurd, I cried. There is no sense about it. No sensible young man should for a moment entertain such a proposal. The whole thing is non-existent. I've had a bad night. I've been dreaming of horrors. But I had followed the banks of the Elbe and passed the town. After passing the port too, I had reached Altona Road. I was led by a presentiment soon to be realized. For shortly I espied my little Grauben, bravely returning with her light step to Hamburg. Grauben, I cried from far off. The young girl stopped, rather frightened perhaps to hear her name called after her on the high road. Ten yards more, and I had joined her. Axel, she cried surprised. What? Have you come to meet me? Is this why you are here, sir? But when she had looked upon me, Grauben could not fail to see the uneasiness and distress of my mind. What is the matter, she said, holding out her hand. What is the matter, Grauben? I cried. In a couple of minutes, my pretty Virlandaise was fully informed of the position of affairs. For a time she was silent. Did her heart palpitate as mine did? I don't know about that, but I know her hand did not tremble in mine. We went on a hundred yards without speaking. At last she said, Axel, my dear Grauben, that will be a splendid journey. I gave a bound at these words. Yes, Axel, a journey worthy of the nephew of a savant. It is a good thing for a man to be distinguished by some great enterprise. What, Grauben? Won't you dissuade me from such an undertaking? No, my dear Axel, and I would willingly go with you, but that a poor girl would only be in your way. Is that quite true? It is true. Ah, women and young girls, how incomprehensible are your feminine hearts. When you are not the timidest, you are the bravest of creatures. Reason has nothing to do with your actions. What? Did this child encourage me in such an expedition? Would she not be afraid to join herself? And as she was driving me to it, one whom she loved. I was disconcerted, and if I must tell the whole truth, I was ashamed. 
Grauben. We will see whether you will say the same thing tomorrow. Tomorrow, my dear Axel, I will say what I say today. Grauben and I, hand in hand, but in silence, pursued our way. The emotions of that day were breaking my heart. It was night when we arrived at the house in Koningstrasse. I expected to find all quiet there, my uncle in bed as was his custom, and Martha giving her last touches with the feather brush. But I had not taken into account the professor's impatience. I found him shouting and working himself up amidst a crowd of porters and messengers who were all depositing various loads in the passage. Our old servant was at her wit's end. Come, Axel, come, you miserable wretch. My uncle cried from as far off as he could see me. Your boxes are not packed, and my papers are not arranged. Where's the key of my carpet bag? And what have you done with my gaiters? I was thunderstruck. My voice failed. Scarcely could my lips utter the words. Are we really going? Of course, you unhappy boy. Could I have dreamed that you would have gone out for a walk instead of hurrying your preparations forward? Are we to go, I asked again, with sinking hopes? Yes, the day after tomorrow, early. I could hear no more. I fled for refuge into my own little room. All hope was now at an end. My uncle had been all the morning making purchases of a part of the tools and apparatus required for this desperate undertaking. The passage was encumbered with rope ladders, knotted cords, torches, flasks, grappling irons, alpenstocks, pickaxes, iron-shod sticks, enough to load ten men. I spent an awful night. Next morning I was called early. I had quite decided I would not open the door. But how was I to resist the sweet voice which was always music to my ears, saying, My dear Axel, I came out of my room. I thought my pale countenance and my red sleepless eyes would work upon Grauben's sympathies and change her mind. Ah, my dear Axel, she said, I see you are better. A night's rest has done you good. Done me good, I exclaimed. I rushed to the glass. Well, in fact, I did look better than I had expected. I could hardly believe my own eyes. Mm -hmm. Axel, she said, I've had a long talk with my guardian. He's a bold philosopher, a man of immense courage, and you must remember that his blood flows in your veins. He has confided to me his plans, his hopes and why and how he hopes to attain his object. He will no doubt succeed. My dear Axel, it is a grand thing to devote yourself to science. What honor will fall upon Herr Liedenbrock, and so be reflected upon his companion? When you return, Axel, you will be a man, his equal, free to speak and act independently, and free to... The dear girl only finished this sentence by blushing. Her words revived me, yet I refused to believe we should start. I drew Grauben into the professor's study. Uncle, is it true that we are to go? Why do you doubt? 
don't doubt, I said, not to vex him. But I ask, what need is there to hurry? Time. Time flying with irreparable rapidity. But it is only the 16th of May. And until the end of June... What, you monument of ignorance? Do you think you can get to Iceland in a couple of days? If you had not deserted me like a fool, I should have taken you to the Copenhagen office, to Liffender and company, and you would have learned then that there is only one trip every month from Copenhagen to Reykjavik on the 22nd. Well? Well, if we wait for the 22nd of June, we should be too late to see the shadow of Skartaris touch the crater of Sneffels. Therefore, we must get to Copenhagen as fast as we can to secure our passage. Go and pack up. There was no reply to this. I went to my room. Kraubin followed me. She undertook to pack up all things necessary for my voyage. She was no more moved than if I had been starting for a little trip to Lübeck or Heligoland. Her little hands moved without haste. She talked quietly. She supplied me with sensible reasons for her expedition. She delighted me, and yet I was angry with her. Now and then I felt I ought to break out into a passion, but she took no notice and went on her way as methodically as ever. Finally, the last strap was buckled. I came downstairs. All that day, the philosophical instrument makers and the electricians kept coming and going. Martha was distracted. Is Master mad? she asked. I nodded my head. And is he going to take you with him? I nodded again. Where to? I pointed my finger downwards. <laughs> Down into the cellar? cried the old servant. No, I said, lower down than that. Night came, but I knew nothing about the lapse of time. Tomorrow morning, at six precisely, my uncle decreed, we start. At ten o'clock I fell upon my bed, a dead lump of inert matter. Mm -hmm. All through the night the terror had hold of me. I spent it dreaming of abysses. I was a prey to delirium. I felt myself grasped by the professor's sinewy hand, dragged along, hurled down, shattered into little bits. I dropped down unfathomable precipices with the accelerating velocity of bodies falling through space. My life had become an endless fall. I awoke at five with shattered nerves, trembling and weary. I came downstairs. My uncle was at table devouring his breakfast. I stared at him with horror and disgust. But dear Grauben was there, so I said nothing and could eat nothing. At half past five, there was a rattle of wheels outside. A large carriage was there to take us to the Altona railway station was soon piled up with my uncle's multifarious preparations. Where is your box? he cried. It is ready, I replied with faltering voice. 
Then make haste down or we shall lose the train. It was now manifestly impossible to maintain the struggle against destiny. I went up again to my room, and rolling my portmanteus downstairs, I started after him. At that moment, my uncle was solemnly investing Graubin with the reins of government. My pretty Virlandaise was as calm and collected as was her wont. She kissed her guardian, but could not restrain a tear in touching my cheek with her gentle lips. Graubin, I murmured. Go, my dear Axel, go. I am now your betrothed, and when you come back, I will be your wife. I pressed her in my arms and took my place in the carriage. Martha and the young girl, standing at the door, waved their last farewell, and then the horses, roused by the driver's whistling, darted off at a gallop upon the road to Altona. Close to the sea, 
The luggage being labeled for Copenhagen, we had no occasion to look after it. Yet the professor watched every article with jealous vigilance until all were safe on board. There they disappeared in the hold. My uncle, notwithstanding his hurry, had so well calculated the relations between the train and the steamer that we had a whole day to spare. The steamer, Eleonora, did not start until night. Then sprang a feverish state of excitement in which the impatient, irascible traveler devoted to perdition the railway directors and the steamboat companies and the governments which allowed such intolerable slowness. I was obliged to act a chorus to him when he attacked the captain of the Eleonora upon this subject. The captain disposed of us summarily. At Kiel, as elsewhere, we must do something to while away the time. What with walking on the verdant shores of the bay within which nestles the little town, exploring thick woods which make it look like a nest embowered amongst thick foliage, admiring the villas, each provided with a little bathing house, and moving about and grumbling, at last ten o'clock came. The heavy coils of smoke from the Eleanor's funnel unrolled in the sky. The bridge shook with the quivering of the struggling steam. We were on board, and owners for the time of two berths, one over the other, in the only saloon cabin on board. At a quarter past, the moorings were loosed, and the throbbing steamer pursued her way over the dark waters of the great belt. The night was dark. There was a sharp breeze and a rough sea. A few lights appeared on shore through the thick darkness. Later on, I cannot tell when, a dazzling light from some lighthouse threw a bright stream of fire along the waves. And this is all I can remember of this first portion of our sail. At seven in the morning, we landed at Corsor, a small town on the west coast of Zealand. There we were transferred from the boat to another line of railway, which took us by just as flat a country as the plain of Holstein. Three hours traveling brought us to the capital of Denmark. My uncle had not shut his eyes all night. In his impatience, I believe, he was trying to accelerate the train with his feet. At last he discerned a stretch of sea. The sound, he cried. At our left was a huge building that looked like a hospital. That's a lunatic asylum, said one of our traveling companions. Very good, thought I. Just the place we want to end our days in. And great as it is, that asylum is not big enough to contain all Professor Liedenbrock's madness. At ten in the morning at last, we set our feet in Copenhagen. The luggage was put upon a carriage and taken with ourselves to the Phoenix Hotel in Breda Gate. This took half an hour, for the station is out of town. Then my uncle, after a hasty toilet, dragged me after him. The porter at the hotel could speak German and English, but the professor, as a polyglot, questioned him in good Danish. And it was in the same language that the personage directed him to the Museum of Northern Antiquities. The curator of this curious establishment, in which wonders are gathered together, out of which the ancient history of the country might be reconstructed.
constructed by means of its stone weapons, its cups, and its jewels, was a learned savant, the friend of the Danish consul at Hamburg, Professor Thompson. My uncle had a cordial letter of introduction to him. As a general rule, one savant greets another with coolness, but here the case was different. Mr. Thompson, like a good friend, gave the professor Liedenbrock a cordial greeting, and he even vouchsafed the same kindness to his nephew. It is hardly necessary to say the secret was sacredly kept from the excellent curator. We were simply disinterested travelers visiting Iceland out of harmless curiosity. Mr. Thompson placed his services at our disposal, and we visited the Keys with the object of finding out the next vessel to sail. I was yet in hopes that there would be no means of getting to Iceland, but there was no such luck. A small Danish schooner, the Valkyria, was to set sail for Reykjavik on the 2nd of June. The captain, Mr. Bjarn, was on board. His intending passenger was so joyful that he almost squeezed his hands till he ached. That good man was rather surprised at his energy. To him it seemed a very simple thing to go to Iceland, as that was his business. But to my uncle, it was sublime. The worthy captain took advantage of his enthusiasm to charge double fares, but we did not trouble ourselves about mere trifles. You must be on board on Tuesday at seven in the morning, said Captain Bjarn, after having pocketed more dollars than were his due. Then we thanked Mr. Thompson for his kindness, and we returned to the Phoenix Hotel. It's all right, it's all right, my uncle repeated. How fortunate we are to have found this boat ready for sailing. Now, let us have some breakfast and go about the town. We went first to Coggins Nightorb, an irregular square in which are two innocent-looking guns, which need not alarm anyone. Close by, at number five, there was a French restaurant kept by a cook of the name of Vincent, where we had an ample breakfast for four marks each. Then I took a childish pleasure in exploring the city. My uncle let me take him with me, but he took notice of nothing, neither the insignificant king's palace nor the pretty 17th century bridge, which spans the canal before the museum, nor that immense cenotaph of Torvaldsens, adorned with horrible mural painting, and containing within it a collection of the sculptor's works, nor in a fine park the toy-like chateau of Rosenberg, nor the beautiful Renaissance edifice of the exchange, nor its spire composed of the twisted tails of four bronze dragons, nor the great windmill on the ramparts, whose huge arm dialed in the sea breeze like the sails of a ship. What delicious walks we should have had together, my pretty Virlandaise and I, along the harbor where the two deckers and the frigates slept peaceably by the red roofing of the warehouse, by the green banks of the strait, through the deep shades of the trees amongst which the fort is half concealed where the guns are thrusting out their black throats between branches of alder and willow. But alas, Grauben was far away, and I never hoped to see her again. But if my uncle felt no attraction to
towards these romantic scenes, he was very much struck with the aspect of a certain church spire situated in the island of Amak, which forms the southwest quarter of Copenhagen. I was ordered to direct my feet that way. I embarked on a small steamer which piles on the canals, and in a few minutes she touched the quay of the dockyard. After crossing a few narrow streets where some convicts in trousers half yellow and half gray were at work under the orders of the gangers, we arrived at the Vor Frelser's Kirk. There was nothing remarkable about the church, but there was a reason why its tall spire had attracted the professor's attention. Starting from the top of the tower, an external staircase wound around the spire, the spirals circling up into the sky. Let us get to the top, said my uncle. I shall be dizzy, I said. The more reason why we should go up, we must get used to it. But come, I tell you, don't waste our time. I had to obey. A keeper who lived at the other end of the street handed us the key, and the ascent began. My uncle went ahead with a light step. I followed him not without alarm for my head was very apt to feel dizzy. I possessed neither the equilibrium of an eagle nor his fearless nature. As long as we were protected on the inside of the winding staircase up the tower, all was well enough. But after toiling up 150 steps, the fresh air came to salute my face, and we were on the leads of the tower. There, the aerial staircase began its gyrations only guarded by a thin iron rail, and the narrowing steps seemed to ascend into infinite space. Never shall I be able to do it, I said. Don't be a coward. Come up, sir, said my uncle with the coldest cruelty. I had to follow, clutching at every step. The keen air made me giddy. I felt the spire rocking with every gust of wind. My knees began to fail. Soon, I was crawling on my knees, then creeping on my stomach. I closed my eyes. I seemed to be lost in space. At last, I reached the apex, with the assistance of my uncle dragging me up by the collar. Look down, he cried. Look down well. You must take a lesson in abysses. I opened my eyes. I saw houses squashed flat as if they had all fallen down from the skies. A smoke fog seemed to drown them. Over my head, ragged clouds were drifting past, and by an optical inversion, they seemed stationary, while the steeple, the ball, and I were all spinning along with fantastic speed. Far away on one side was the green country, on the other, the sea sparkled, bathed in sunlight. The sound stretched away to Elsinore, dotted with a few white sails, like seagulls' wings. And in the misty east, and away to the northeast, lay outstretched the faintly shadowed shores of Sweden. All this immensity of space whirled and wavered, fluctuating beneath my eyes. But I was compelled to rise, to stand up, to look. My first lesson in dizziness lasted an hour. 
When I got permission to come down and feel the solid street pavements, I was afflicted with severe lumbargo. Tomorrow we will do it again, said the professor. And it was so. For five days in succession, I was obliged to undergo this anti-vertiginous exercise. And whether I would or not, I made some improvement in the art of lofty contemplations. End of chapter 8. Ships of all nations. 
The castle of Kronsberg soon disappeared in the mist, as well as the tower of Helsingborg, built on the Swedish coast, and the schooner passed lightly on her way, urged by the breezes of the Kattegat. The Valkyria was a splendid sailor, but on a sailing vessel you can place no dependence. She was taking to Reykjavik coal, household goods, earthenware, woolen clothing, and a cargo of wheat. The crew consisted of five men, all Danes. How long will the passage take? My uncle asked. Ten days, replied the captain. If we don't meet the Norwester in passing the Faroes. But are you not subject to considerable delays? No, Mr. Liedenbrock. Don't be uneasy. We shall get there in good time. At evening, the schooner doubled the scaw at the northern point of Denmark. In the night, passed the Skagger Rock, skirted Norway by Cape Lindness and entered the North Sea. In two days more, we sighted the coast of Scotland near Peterhead, and the Valkyria turned her lead towards the Faroe Islands, passing between the Orkneys and the Shetlands. Soon the schooner encountered the great Atlantic swell. She had to tack against the north wind and reach the Faroes only with some difficulty. On the 8th, the captain made out Myganus, the southernmost of these islands, and from that moment took a straight course for Cape Portland, the most southerly point of Iceland. The passage was marked with nothing unusual. I bore the troubles of the sea pretty well. My uncle, to his own intense disgust and his great shame, was ill all through the voyage. Mm. He was therefore unable to converse with the captain about Snaffel. The way to get to it, the facilities for transport. He was obliged to put off these inquiries until his arrival and spent all his time at full length in his cabin, of which the timbers creaked and shook with every pitch she took. It must be confessed that he was not undeserving of his punishment. On the 11th, we reached Cape Portland. The clear, open weather gave us a good view of Myrdals Yoko, which overhangs it. The cape is merely a low hill with steep sides standing lonely by the beach. The Valkyria kept at some distance from the coast, taking a westerly course amidst great shoals of whales and sharks. Soon we came in sight of an enormous perforated rock through which the sea dashed furiously. The Westman islets seemed to rise out of the ocean like a group of rocks in a liquid plain. From that time, the schooner took a wide berth and swept at a great distance round Cape Reykjanes, which forms the western point of Iceland. The rough sea prevented my uncle from coming on deck to admire these shattered and surf-beaten coasts. Forty-eight hours after, coming out of a storm which forced the schooner to scud under bare poles, we sighted east of us the beacon of Cape Skagen, where dangerous rocks extend far away seaward. An Icelandic pilot came on board, and in three hours the Valkyria dropped her anchor before Reykjavik in Faxa Bay.
The professor at last emerged from his cabin, rather pale and wretched looking, but still full of enthusiasm and with ardent satisfaction shining on his eyes. The population of the town, wonderfully interested in the arrival of a vessel from which everyone expected something, formed in groups upon the quay. My uncle left in haste his floating prison, or rather hospital. But before quitting the deck of the schooner, he dragged me forward, and pointing with outstretched finger, north of the bay at a distant mountain terminating in a double peak, a pair of cones covered with perpetual snow, he cried, Snaffel, Snaffel. Then recommending me, by an impressive gesture, to keep silence, he went into the boat which awaited him. I followed, and presently we were treading the soil of Iceland. The first fellow we saw was a good-looking fellow enough in a general's uniform. Yet he was not a general, but a magistrate, the governor of the island, Monsieur le Baron Trompe himself. The professor was soon aware of the presence he was in. He delivered him his letters from Copenhagen, and then followed a short conversation in the Danish language, the purport of which I was quite ignorant of, and for a very good reason. But the result of this first conversation was that the Baron Trampe placed himself entirely at the service of Professor Liedenbrock. My uncle was just as courteously received by the mayor, Mr. Finson, whose appearance was as military and disposition and office as pacific as the governor's. As for the bishop suffragan, Mr. Pictorson, he was at that moment engaged on an episcopal visitation in the north. For the time, we must be resigned to wait for the honor of being presented to him. But Mr. Fridrikson, professor of natural sciences at the school of Reykjavik, was a delightful man, and his friendship became very precious to me. This modest philosopher spoke only Danish and Latin. He came to proffer me his good offices in the language of Horace, and I felt that we were made to understand each other. In fact, he was the only person in Iceland with whom I could converse at all. This good-natured gentleman made over to us two of the three rooms which his house contained, and we were soon installed in it with our luggage, the abundance of which rather astonished the good people of Reykjavik. Well, Axel, said my uncle, we are getting on, and now the worst is over. The worst, I said, astonished. To be sure, now we have nothing to do but go down. Oh, if that is all, you are quite right. But after all, when we have gone down, we shall have to get up again, I suppose. Oh, I don't trouble myself about that. Come, there's no time to lose. I'm going to the library. Perhaps there is some manuscript of Saknusum's there, and I should be glad to consult it. Well, while you are there, I will go into the town, won't you? Oh, that is very uninteresting to me. It is not what is upon this island, but what is underneath that interests me. I went out and wandered wherever chance took me. It would not be easy to lose your way in Reykjavik. 
I was therefore under no necessity to inquire the road which exposes one to mistakes when the only medium of intercourse is gesture. The town extends along a low and marshy level between two hills. An immense bed of lava bounds it on one side and falls gently towards the sea. On the other extends the vast bay of Faxa, shut in at the north by the enormous glacier of the Snaffel, and of which the Valkyria was for the time the only occupant. Usually, the English and French conservators of fisheries moor in this bay, but just then they were cruising about the western coasts of the island. The longest of the only two streets that Reykjavik possesses was parallel with the beach. Here lived the merchants and the traders in wooden cabins made of red planks set horizontally. The other street, running west, ends at the little lake between the house, the bishop, and other non-commercial people. I had soon explored these melancholy ways. Here and there I got a glimpse of faded turf, looking like a worn-out bit of carpet or some appearance of a kitchen garden, the sparse vegetables of which, potatoes, cabbages, and lettuce, would have figured appropriately upon a lilliputton table. A few sickly wallflowers were trying to enjoy the air and sunshine. About the middle of the tin commercial street, I found the public cemetery, enclosed within a mud wall, where there seemed plenty of room. Then a few steps brought me to the governor's house, small compared with the town hall of Hamburg, but a palace in comparison with the cabins of the Icelandic population. Between the little lake and the town, the church is built in the Protestant style, calcined stones extracted out of the volcanoes by their own labor and at their own expense. In high westerly winds, it was manifest that the red tiles of the roof would be scattered in the air to the great danger of the faithful worshippers. On a neighboring hill I perceived the national school, where, as I was informed later by our host, were taught Hebrew, English, French, and Danish, four languages of which, with the shame I confess it, I don't know a single word. After an examination, I should have had to stand last of the forty scholars ed educated at this little college and I should have been held unworthy to sleep among them in one of those little double closets where more delicate use would have died of suffocation at the very first night. In three hours, I had seen not only the town, but its environs. The general aspect was wonderfully dull. No trees and scarcely any vegetation. Everywhere bare rocks, signs of volcanic action. The Icelandic butts are made of earth and turf, and the walls slope inward. They rather resemble roofs placed on the ground, but then these roofs are meadows of comparative fertility, thanks to the internal heat. The grass grows on them to some degree of perfection. It is carefully mown in the hay season. If it were not, the horses would come to pasture on these green abodes. In my excursion, I met but few people. On returning to the main street, I found the greater part of the population busied in drying, salting, and putting on board codfish, their chief export. The men looked like robust but heavy blond Germans with pensive eyes, conscious of being far removed from their fellow creatures. 
poor exiles relegated to this land of ice. Poor creatures who should have been Eskimo, since nature had condemned them to live only just outside the Arctic Circle. In vain did I try to detect a smile upon their lips. Sometimes, by a spasmodic and involuntary contraction of the muscles, they seemed to laugh, but they never smiled. Their costume consisted of a coarse jacket of black woolen cloth called, in Scandinavian lands, of badmel, a hat with a very broad brim, trousers with a narrow edge of red, and a bit of leather rolled around the foot for shoes. The women looked as sad and as resigned as the men. Their faces were agreeable but expressionless, and they wore gowns and petticoats of dark fadmel. As maidens, they wore over their braided hair a little knitted brown cap. When married, they put around their heads a colored handkerchief, crowned with a peak of white linen. After a good walk, I returned to Mr. Fridrikson's house, where I found my uncle already in his host's company. End of chapter nine. Chapter 9. There are a lot of chapters. I think there's 30. So at some point, I'll have to break it off. Recording by Kristen Luoma. GreenKRI.com. Journey to the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne. Sounds so cute. Chapter 10. Interesting conversations with Icelandic savants. Dinner was ready. Professor Liedenbrock devoured his portion voraciously, for his compulsory fast on board had converted his stomach into a vast, unfathomable gulf. There was nothing remarkable in the meal itself, but the hospitality of our host, more Danish than Icelandic, reminded me of the heroes of old. It was evident that we were more at home than he was himself. The conversation was carried on in the vernacular tongue, which my uncle mixed with German and Mr. Friedrichsen with Latin for my benefit. It turned upon scientific questions as befits philosophers. But Professor Liedenbrock was excessively reserved and at every sentence spoke to me with his eyes, enjoining the most absolute silence upon our plans. In the first place, Mr. Fridrikson wanted to know what success my uncle had had at the library. Your library? Why, there is nothing but a few tattered books upon almost deserted shelves. Indeed, replied Mr. Fridrikson. Why, we possess 8,000 volumes, many of them valuable and scarce, works in the old Scandinavian language, and we have all the novelties that Copenhagen sends us every year. Where do you keep your 8,000 volumes? For my part, oh, Mr. Liedenbrock, they're all over the country. In this icy region, we are fond of study. There is not a farmer nor a fisherman that cannot read and does not read. Our principle is that books, instead of growing moldy behind an iron grating, should be worn out under the eyes of many readers. Therefore, these volumes are passed from one to another, read over and over, referred to again and again. And it often happens that they find their way back to their shelves only after an absence of a year or two. And in the meantime, 
said my uncle rather spitefully. Strangers? Well, what would you have? Foreigners have their libraries at home, and the first essential for laboring people is that they should be educated. I repeat to you, the love of reading runs in Icelandic blood. In 1816, we founded a prosperous literary society. Learned strangers think themselves honored in becoming members of it. It publishes books which educate our fellow countrymen and do the country great service. If you will consent to be a corresponding member, Herr Liedenbrock, you will be giving us a great pleasure. My uncle, who had already joined about a hundred learned societies, accepted with a grace which evidently touched Mr. Fredrickson. Now, said he, will you be kind enough to tell me what books you hope to find in our library, and I may perhaps enable you to consult them. My uncle's eyes and mine met. He hesitated. This direct question went to the root of the matter, but after a moment's reflection he decided on speaking. Monsieur Friedrichsen, I wish to know if amongst your ancient books you possessed any of the works of Arne Sacknusium. Arne Sacknusium, replied the Reykjavik professor. You mean that learned 16th century savant, a naturalist, a chemist, and a traveler? Just so. One of the glories of Icelandic literature and science? That's the man. An illustrious man anywhere. Quite so. And whose courage was equal to his genius. I see that you know him well. My uncle was bathed in delight at hearing his hero thus described. He feasted his eyes upon Mr. Fredrickson's face. Well, he cried, where are his works? His works, we have them not. What? Not in Iceland? They are neither in Iceland nor anywhere else. Why is that? Because Arnsak Nusum was persecuted for heresy, and in 1573 his books were burned by the hands of the common hangman. Very good, excellent, cried my uncle to the great scandal of the professor of natural history. What? he cried. Yes, yes, now it is all clear, now it is all unraveled, and I see why Sacknusum, put into the index expurgatorius, and compelled to hide the discoveries made by his genius, was obliged to bury in an incomprehensible cryptogram the secret... What secret? asked Mr. Fredrickson, starting. Oh, just a secret which... But my uncle stammered. Have you some private document in your possession? asked our host. No, I was only supposing a case. Oh, very well, answered Mr. Fredrickson, who was kind enough not to pursue the subject when he had noticed the embarrassment of his friend. I hope you will not leave our island until you have seen some of its mineralogical wealth. Certainly, replied my uncle, but I am rather late, or have not others been here before me? Yes, Herr Liedenbrock, the labors of Misters Olafsen and Povelsen, pursued by order of the king, the researches of Troil, the scientific mission of Mr. Gamard and Robert on the French corvette, La Recherche, and lately the observations of scientific men who came in the Rennes Hortense have added materially to our knowledge of Iceland, but I assure you there is plenty left. Begin note. Recherche was sent out in 1835 by Admiral Dupère to learn the fate of the lost expedition of Monsieur de Blosville in the Lilloise, which has never been heard of. End note. Do you think so? 
said my uncle, pretending to look very modest and trying to hide the curiosity was flashing out of his eyes.